Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Curled inside the empty spare tire compartment inside the trunk of an Audi, beneath several blue bags of heavy IKEA furniture, a 32-year-old woman named Latifa held her breath. She was attempting to sneak across the border from the United Arab Emirates to Oman, where, hopefully, she would make it onto the boat that would bring her to international waters where she hoped she would be free. Latifa's full name was Sheikha Latifa bint Muhammad bin Rashid al Maktoum, and she was the daughter of the ruling emir of Dubai, Sheikh Muhammad. For years, Latifa had been studying and cultivating relationships with people who could help her escape her repressive home. She even trained in extreme sports so that she would be ready for whatever she needed to do. That was how Latifa had met a woman named Tina Yahayanen, a Finnish woman living in Dubai who gave Latifa private capoeira lessons. Tina was the one driving the Audi across the border. She would stay with Latifa every step on the journey to freedom. Thankfully, a guard waved the car across the border into Oman without looking in the spare tire compartment. But the journey was far from over. Latifa had made arrangements for a yacht that could bring them to India, where, hopefully, with the help of a fake passport, she could fly to the United States and claim asylum. But first, she needed to get 16 miles offshore to meet the yacht. There was another contact who gave Latifa and Tina a ride in his dinghy. And though a storm pressed toward them on the horizon, and locals warned the man not to go out in his small boat, Latifa had come too far to turn back. Their tiny boat pressed forward through violent waves, but still it couldn't make it all the way to the yacht. And so Latifa's next contact, a former French naval officer who had once escaped Dubai himself, where he was charged with embezzlement, rode from the yacht with another crew member to the dinghy on jet skis. Latifa and Tina both fell into the water several times, but eventually they managed to make it onto the back of the jet skis and then safely to the yacht. The yacht was filthy and teeming with cockroaches, but they were finally in international waters. And when Latifa slept on the deck, she could see the stars. But freedom wouldn't last long. They noticed a ship was trailing them when they were about 30 miles off the coast of India. The next night, Latifa heard gunshots and boots on the deck. Commandos tied Latifa up and injected her with tranquilizers before flying her back to the place she had already risked everything to try to escape. But that wouldn't be the end of Latifa's story. She had already risked everything to try to get away, and now she wanted the world to know what she was going through. Latifa's escape attempt and its aftermath received international attention when it occurred in 2018 
I'm thrilled to be talking with New Yorker staff writer Heidi Blake, who wrote about Latifa in an incredible article in May of 2023, and who's revisited the story and the story of other royal women who have attempted to escape the restrictive lives they were born into in the UAE for the New Yorker's narrative podcast series, The Runaway Princesses. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. Heidi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I thought your your piece last spring in The New Yorker was just so extraordinary, and you've, you've continued uh, writing about Latifah and the women like her. But before we get into Latifah's 2018 escape attempt, can we go back a little bit, and can you just tell me a bit, Latifah's father is Sheikh uh, Mohammed. What sort of power does he have? What's sort of his political position in the United Arab Emirates? So Sheikh Mohammed is the ruler of Dubai, and he's also the prime minister of the United Arab Emirates, which is a a major strategic ally to Western governments. And so Sheikh Mohammed is in this interesting position because he wields absolute power at home, and he also has a huge amount of power and influence on the world stage. Um, and he, you know, he's a he's a big ally of the US and of the UK. He's actually in the in the UK. He's Britain's biggest private landowner. He's the owner of the world's biggest thoroughbred racehorsing team, which in the UK is a big deal because the late Queen of England was a huge horse racing fan and he had cultivated this very valuable friendship with her through their shared love of horse racing. And so those things really play out in this story. He's this He has this extraordinary degree of power and influence around the world and particularly in the UK um, as well as inside Dubai. It seems like in recent years, uh, the United Arab Emirates has sort of been making a public push saying that they're advocating for the rights of women. Can you tell us a little bit, though, about what the conditions are for women, some of the, the truth to that sort of PR blitz, and then what the conditions were for royal women? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's one of the things about the story that I sort of found most striking, really, is that Sheikh Mohammed has been at pains to position himself on the world stage as a champion of women's rights within the Middle East. He's vowed to remove all of the hurdles that women face in the UAE. And he's passed a number of seemingly progressive laws guaranteeing women, for example, equal pay for equal work. He's appointed nine women to cabinet positions in the UAE's government. And many of those initiatives are spearheaded by one of his daughters, and so he he has actually kind of wheeled out his own female family members as sort of emblems of his commitment to female advancement. And that has won him a lot of plaudits in the West. He's been sort of praised for his uh, for his progressive stance. Um, but actually, what I found when I began to report on this is that women in Dubai's royal family occupy this sort of impossible dual role where they're on the one hand held up as sort of symbols of Sheikh Mohammed's, you know, great beneficence towards women, but actually also are expected to occupy very tightly defined roles. And if they step outside of that, they can be brutally punished. And the sort of importance for Sheikh Mohammed in maintaining the sort of illusion of absolute power is, it's essential to him, basically, to make sure that women in his family do not step out of line, are are not seen to be challenging his authority. And it's sort of politically dangerous for him if that is the case. And so when women have challenged him, the consequences for them have been absolutely dire. One detail just early on in your piece, almost as coloring, but that I found so incredibly striking was that Latifah was, when she was an infant, was given 
to another of Sheikh Mohammed's wives sort of as a gift, as an offering almost to raise. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, Sheikh Mohammed, so he has six wives and around 30 children. And it's kind of fascinating the way that these these kids are almost sort of a commodity. And and so Latifa and and her brother were both removed from their their natural mother as infants and given as a gift to Sheikh Mohammed's childless sister, who, by Latifa's account, um, because, you know, I sort of pieced this together from Latifa's own writings, over the course of about a decade where she really documented what her early life had been like. By her description, her aunt sort of almost collected stray children in in her palace. And so Latifa was raised among dozens of other kids who her aunt seemed to sort of want to own, but then who were kept confined to their bedrooms and not able to go out and to play and lived really very sort of miserable and straightened lives. And she she wrote really movingly about just spending days at the window, kind of watching the world go by outside. And one image that just really stuck with me was she she wrote about how she would dream over and over again that she was flying a kite so huge it would carry her into the sky because she was just desperate to get away. And that was a preoccupation which really defined most of her, you know, her childhood and then also her adult life. So let's fast forward to Latifa's 2018 escape attempt. What were those preparations like for her? Obviously, her father has so much power, so it was an incredibly dangerous prospect for her. Right, exactly. And and she knew what the stakes were because she'd seen what happened to other women in the royal family who tried to escape. So her own sister Shamza, 20 years earlier, had tried to run away on a trip to the UK and had since been captured and imprisoned and held under heavy sedation in the palace. Her aunt Bushra had been kidnapped from Britain after antagonising Dubai's ruler and had been brought back to Dubai where she died suspiciously. And so Latifa sort of knew what the risks were. She herself had previously tried to escape to get help for her sister Shamza. Um, and had been captured and imprisoned for years and beaten so badly that all the bones in her feet had been broken during prolonged torture sessions. So she knew that the risks were huge, but she wrote again and again to her supporters that she was prepared to countenance death. She was so determined to get away. She said it's it's freedom or death and nothing in between. So her determination is one of the things that's so striking in, in the sort of letters and messages and writings that I, I got hold of. And she actually spent seven years planning her second escape attempt. And she planned it in extraordinary detail. She recruited a team to help her, two martial arts instructors and uh, a former French naval officer um, who was to captain the yacht that she escaped on. Um, And they spent years deliberating over how she would get out of Dubai and over the border into Oman, which was where she was going to escape onto this yacht. They spent years practicing her um, doing an underwater swim using a um, an underwater scooter and a scuba rebreather to try and get over the border that way and ultimately decided that was too risky. And so eventually they decided to smuggle her over the border into Oman in the boot of a car um, before she used a dinghy and then jet skis to get onto this yacht that she used to make her getaway. So yeah, it was it was an escape attempt of just extraordinary daring. Obviously, as your story tells, when she was about 30 miles off the coast of India, commandos stormed the yacht and uh, Latifa was was captured. What went wrong in the escape? Well, I guess there were a, a sort of a, a variety of things that 
that led up to Latifah's capture. But ultimately, I think you sort of realise when you when you look into this that when you're up against Sheikh Mohammed, no one really has a chance. And he, you know, he 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 his global power extends so widely that really, I think you sort of you know, in retrospect, Latifah's hope that she was going to be able to get away was pretty fanciful. So her father had managed to intercept her communications from on board the yacht and was able to pinpoint exactly where she was. He'd issued red notices through Interpol, the international policing agency, accusing the people who were helping her of having her kidnapped to enlist the support of you know, international police forces. Um, and he had then put in a call to his friend and ally, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and persuaded Modi to send armed commandos to storm the yacht off the coast of India and capture Latifa in exchange for an arms dealer who was based in Dubai, who Narendra Modi wanted extraditing back to India. And so this whole kind of deal was stitched up between two world leaders and Latifa was captured and, and dragged away back to Dubai just around a week after assessing off. When she was tranquilized and brought back to Dubai, what do we know about her her treatment? Well, so she she went dark for a long time after the, the yacht that she was on was stormed and her friends and supporters had no idea what had happened to her. Her friend Tina just describes seeing Latifah being dragged off the side of the boat shouting, shoot me now, don't take me back. And then they heard nothing from her for about a year. Only after a year had gone by did Latifah's supporters get a message from, from a woman who was attending to Latifah where she was being held. And then they kind of began this extraordinary correspondence where Latifah was being held in prison, but had a secret line of communication via this, this maid back to her friends who were based in the UK and was able to document exactly what had happened to her. And she described being dragged off this boat, tranquilized, thrown into a desert prison um, where she came under concerted pressure to recant a testimony that she'd, she'd published online, um, accusing her father of all sorts of crimes during her escape and to kind of tell the world that she was fine um, and that she was living freely in Dubai and that she was not, um, you know, that she no longer she no longer wished to leave the country. And she resisted that for years during this imprisonment. She absolutely refused to cooperate with that. But, um, you know, eventually in these, these letters and, and messages, videos that she was sharing with her supporters, you kind of see her willpower begin to ebb away. She talks about, you know, how she's being guarded around the clock. She's not being allowed to open the window. She feels she's dying a very slow death by suffocation. Her father's guards are, are increasingly appearing accompanied by a psychiatrist who's putting pressure on her, sort of ramping up the psychological pressure on her to crack. They're telling her she'll never see the sunlight again. She lives constantly in fear of being killed by her father's guards. And I think ultimately you begin to see just the cumulative pressure become too much for her to bear. In recent years, there have been public appearances of Latifa out in the world, and two uh, UN Human Rights Watch officials have met with her publicly. How much credence do you give to those meetings of the UN? Well, yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, it's interesting, the sort of, um, the way the story sort of resolved itself in the end is, is that after you know, decades of absolutely refusing to countenance that she would ever accept a life in Dubai under her father's control and, and, you know, saying again and again, I will never accept that. And 
I will always be imprisoned as long as I'm here and I will never be free until I'm outside Dubai. Latifa suddenly lost all contact with her supporters and then soon after started appearing in what appeared to be kind of carefully stage managed social media photographs. And then ultimately uh, had this, you know, these meetings with UN human rights officials. And they're sort of complicated because it happened in two stages. So one of those took place during her imprisonment. She um, was photographed with Mary Robinson, who was the former UN human rights commissioner and who released a statement afterwards with photographs of Latifa and, and, and said to the media that Latifa was mentally ill, regretted her attempt to escape and was now safe in the loving care of her family. Mary Robinson subsequently retracted that and said she'd been horribly tricked into saying those things after videos of Latifa appeared um, in which she accused her father of holding her hostage and said she was a prisoner. But then after she a second time lost contact with her supporters and then started to appear in these social media posts, she met with Michelle Bachelet, um, who is Mary Robinson's successor as UN Human Rights Commissioner, who released a statement to say that Latifa had assured her that she was well and living as she wishes to and just wished, you know, wished to be left alone to live her life in peace. I spoke to uh, to Michelle Bachelet after that statement and she acknowledged to me that while she'd said that, actually she was far from convinced that Latifa was actually safe and well um, and couldn't rule out that Latifa had come to this meeting with her under duress and had been put under pressure to say those things. It's certainly hard for me, having spent many months kind of immersed in Latifa's writings and the recordings that she left behind, and just those sort of decades of determination on her part, never to give in, never to surrender, never to accept a life under her father's control. It's very hard to imagine that she has suddenly of her own free will completely reversed course and all of that and decided that she really does just want to live in Dubai. You know, I think clearly the stance that she has now taken is at least a product of years of, of torture, imprisonment and abuse um, and, and an extreme duress. And of course, it's possible that she's being outright coerced and, and is, is, you know, is being threatened into saying these things. I think given what we know about the way Sheikh Mohammed has treated his daughters and other women in the family, nothing is off limits in terms of what he would be willing to do to crush their rebellions and to bring them to heel. Uh, and so I don't think anyone should rest assured that Latifa is, is, is well and is living freely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've put a lot of work into figuring myself out. I've gone through a lot of career journeys and there have been points in my life where I had to quit a job that I thought was a dream job when really I knew kind of in the back of my mind that I had to sort of be brave and take a risk and do a less stable, maybe less prestigious job, but something that mattered more to me. Therapy can be a place to work through all of the challenges you face in any relationship, whether it's a relationship with friends, work, your significant other, or you know, yourself. So I'm a big believer in therapy. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com Noble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash noble. 
Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois. One thing that is just very clear in your story is that Latifah's family is just incredibly powerful and I will say frightening. Were you nervous at all investigating and, and publishing your story? I think um, I was certainly conscious that Sheikh Mohammed's government um, has no compunction about sort of digital surveillance on on journalists and things like that. You know, one of the things that came out in um, in the course of a court battle between Sheikh Mohammed and his his youngest wife, Princess Haya, who's another princess who who ran away from him to the UK seeking protection, was that Sheikh Mohammed had used his you know his intelligence agencies had hacked. Hire's phone and the phones of her lawyers and various supporters um, with the Pegasus Israeli spyware. And that subsequently some supporters of Latifah's found that Pegasus was also on their phones. And so I was I was conscious that that sort of thing was certainly a, a possibility, if not a likelihood, and was therefore sort of careful about digital security um, to the extent that any of us really can be these days. But, you know, it, it um, yeah, I mean... I, I think beyond that, I, I just feel incredibly lucky to live in a country where for all for all Britain's many failings, uh, I, I think, you know, it's it's a pretty safe place to go about your work as a journalist. I think it would have been a quite a different thing traveling to Dubai and doing reporting there because I think there are real risks to journalists in that region and, and you know, but I'm I'm lucky to operate in a pretty safe country for this kind of work. Um and so I wasn't I wasn't too nervous for my sort of physical safety, but certainly, yeah, conscious of the kind of digital security side of things. You alluded to to Princess Haya, who, as you said, was was Sheikh Mohammed's youngest wife, was involved in a court battle and ultimately was able to win a settlement and win custody of, of their children to live in England. Can you speak a little bit about her experience? Yeah, Princess Haya's case is a really interesting one because she's kind of the one who got away. I mean, not literally the one who got away. Um, I think that that is really due entirely to her independent status as the daughter of the former King of Jordan, a member of the Jordanian royal family, and a woman who, unlike other women in Sheikh Mohammed's family, actually had a considerable amount of power and status in her own right. And, you know, while... UAE is an important ally to Western governments, so is Jordan. That, that comes with a certain inviolability, I think, that, that wasn't there for Sheikh Mohammed's own children. So when, when Princess Haya ran away to the UK in 2019 with her two young children, she was actually afforded a diplomatic position at the Jordanian embassy, which gave her immunity and, and protection. Um, she was then able, sort of under that cover, to apply to the courts for court protection. Her children were made wards of the court in the UK, which meant they couldn't be removed from the country without court permission. And she was then able to bring a claim against Sheikh Mohammed in, in the British courts, um, which actually provided a forum for a lot of the evidence of his abuse of his, his daughters to come out because she cited his abuse of both Latifa and her sister Shamza as evidence of the threat that Sheikh Mohammed posed to her and to her own children. 
And so those matters were adjudicated in a British court. The judge held a kind of fact-finding process and ultimately ruled that indeed Sheikh Mohammed had kidnapped and imprisoned Shamsa and Latifa. And, and so that was kind of an extraordinary development in this story, this, this moment where one of these women was actually able to get out and get the truth out there. And it was kind of interesting because Haya had played a pretty ambiguous role in all of this up until that point, uh, because she had been the person who arranged this lunch between Latifa and Mary Robinson, um, the product of which were these photographs and then the, the statement by Mary Robinson that Latifa was mentally unwell and basically shouldn't be believed. And Haya had sort of therefore been part of this propaganda campaign by Sheikh Mohammed's government to try to dispel international concern about Latifa. And then shortly afterwards, actually ran away herself and said, help me, I'm in danger. And actually, by way of proof, look what he's doing to Latifa. And so, you know, she she kind of, there was this extraordinary reversal on her part. Um, and so she's, yeah, she's a, she's a fascinating character in all of this. And she's still living in the UK. Um, she actually won the biggest divorce settlement in British legal history against Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and um, yeah, really sort of delivered a pretty resounding blow to his reputation in, in this court action that she was able to bring and all of the appalling abuses that it brought to light. Latifa's sister, Shamsa, as you alluded to, had also uh, attempted to escape when she was in England and she was unsuccessful and wasn't able to to claim asylum in England. Can you briefly just just um, walk us through sort of what Shamsa's escape attempt had been like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Shamsa's escape is really the sort of inciting incident that set off a whole chain of events here that ultimately ended up with Latifa repeatedly trying to escape herself because Latifa's escape attempts were to try to get help for Shamsa. And Shamsa had clashed with Sheikh Mohammed increasingly as she um, as she kind of grew older uh, as, a, as a teenager. She wanted to study. She wants to she wants to travel. She wants to go to university. She didn't want to wear the abaya. She wanted to be able to drive. She wanted, you know, um, those 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 sorts of freedoms that women in the West enjoy. Um, and she was denied all of that and increasingly sort of had this strained relationship with her father. And so ultimately decided when she was in her late teens that she would run away. And she waited till she and, the, and, and, and some other members of the family had traveled to Sheikh Mohammed's summer house in the UK. Um, she was staying there with uh, with with the entourage, um, and she waited till after dark one night, and then slipped away and managed to find a Range Rover that had been left unattended in the grounds. And she drove it out to the perimeter of the estate, dumped the car, um, and slipped through a gate on foot, and dumped her mobile phone, and then just sort of disappeared into the night. And it was. It was weeks before she was tracked down. She managed to kind of stay on the run, um, find friends to stay with. And she actually managed to contact um, an immigration lawyer, a guy called Paul Simon, and ask him to help her get asylum in the UK. She kind of walked into this the office of this small time lawyer and said, I'm a runaway princess from the Dubai royal family. Please, can you help me? Um, which must have been a pretty extraordinary walk in. But he he basically advised her that he wasn't going to be able to help her because she didn't have a passport. She'd left that behind at the house. And so she was sort of out on her own. And in her desperation, she turned to one of her father's guards in the UK, a guy who she had sort of come to trust over the course of her summers there and asked him to help her. And instead of helping her, he lured her into a, a kidnapping. She was then 
dragged back to her father's estate and put on a helicopter and, and then a private jet back to Dubai where she was held for decades um, under heavy sedation and under constant guard um, and as far as we know still is being being held um, following that attempt all those years ago. I was about to say, we, we've gotten these sort of heavily manicured um, photos on social media of Latifah, but is there any evidence that Shamsa is alive? No, like Shamsa, Shamsa really has sort of disappeared without trace. The last I can pinpoint Shamsa's whereabouts is that there there is an extraordinary record that Latifah created of a meeting between the two sisters which was in the summer of 2019 in their father's desert compound. Um, and they were actually both summoned to meet Sheikh Mohammed um, because they'd been called to testify in Princess Haya's case in London. Um, and he wanted to make sure that they, they didn't do this. Um, and so he summoned them both to, um, to, to ask them to provide a statement saying they didn't wish to testify. When they refused to comply, he just wrote to the court on their behalf and said, my daughters have no wish to have any part in this. But Shamsa and Atifa sort of had this private moment together. And it's one of the things we, we've just released a, a podcast series about this story. And one of the things for me that's sort of most compelling is to hear these extraordinary tapes that Latifa made during her imprisonment. And that some of the, these tapes after the meeting with Shamsa are some of the most haunting for me because just the, the raw pain and emotion in her voice as she describes this moment of seeing her sister who she just adored and who she'd fought for and she'd she tried twice to escape for to try and get help she'd risked her life for and this coming this brief coming together of these two women before they were wrenched apart again it's just absolutely heartrending and after that we have no record of what happened to Shamza none of the royal insiders I spoke with were able to shed any light on where she was or knew where she was and when I spoke with Michelle Bachelet, the former UN Human Rights Commissioner who met with Latifa, she said that something that had really struck her was that Latifa was reasonably composed during their meeting. But when she asked about Shamza, Latifa had become suddenly very firm and had said, no, I will not discuss my sister. I will, I'm here to talk about myself and I will not ask answer questions about her. And it seemed odd uh, that she was, there was such a hard line there. Um, like there was just something there that Latifa was absolutely not going to go near. And so, you know, one dreads to think what Shamsa's situation might be. Some, you know, certainly for the decades since she attempted to escape as a teenager, it has been absolutely dire. And one thing that I found uniquely heartbreaking and, and a little frightening uh, that you, you detailed in your investigation was how when English detective inspectors were trying to look into this case, they were fairly continually stymied by higher up saying it's, it's none of our concern. Was that for political reasons? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the sort of real central mysteries of all of this was sort of what happens to these attempts by the police to investigate, you know, in, in, Shamsa's case, she showed extraordinary resourcefulness as a, an 18-year-old on the run and that she managed to instruct this lawyer to act for her. And then having been kidnapped, she managed to get hold of a phone and get a message to her lawyer saying that she wanted the police to be involved. And her lawyer then decided to ignore this and do nothing about it. She then, after another six months of imprisonment, managed again to get a message to her lawyer. And this time the police 
you know, the police were notified that she was alleging that she'd been kidnapped from the UK. And there was a detective who attempted to investigate, but he described how he just was sort of blocked at, you know, every turn and ultimately was told that uh, he wasn't going to be allowed to travel to Dubai to try to investigate Shamsa's situation. And so he decided to kind of step away from the case. And, you know, he certainly felt clearly that that was politically motivated. You know, he said to me, because you're a rich and powerful enough person, you can break any law you like in our country and get away with it. And that that had always really frustrated him. And that was something I heard from multiple police officers and also former government officials I spoke to, that the relationship with the UAE was just too strategically important for the government to compromise, uh, you know, over the individual fate of one or two or three princesses. Um, And they just, they just weren't, prepared to go to the map for these women they kind of viewed it as a private family matter um and officials I spoke to were pretty you know pretty confident that these sorts of things you know blow over and that they knew that one of them said that you know when when these sorts of things blew up with these members of Sheikh Mohammed's family you know they they felt fairly confident it would be a 48 hour wonder and then everybody would move on and forget and I think that's right you know I think they they did get away with allowing this to happen um and Sheikh Mohammed continues to enjoy a very cordial relationship with the British government and, you know, and, and um, is, is esteemed on the world stage as a, you know, a progressive leader in the Middle East. And despite all of this, that continues to be the case. Well, that is uh, a lot to think about. Heidi Blake, uh, to read more, read her incredible investigative reporting in The New Yorker and listen to The New Yorker's brand new podcast series, The Runaway Princesses. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Dana. This was a real pleasure. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is created and hosted by me, Dana Schwartz, with additional writing and researching by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is edited and produced by Noemi Griffin and Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.